section six of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter thirty two the sepoy part two there was however yet another influence and one of tremendous importance in determining the set of that otherwise vague current of feeling which threatened to disturb the tranquil permanence of english rule in india we have spoken of the army and of its religious scruples we must now speak of the territorial and political influences which affected the princes and the populations of india there had been just before the outbreak of the mutiny a wholesale removal of the landmarks a striking application of a bold and thorough policy of annexation a gigantic system of reorganization applied to the territorial arrangements of the north and northwest of the great indian peninsula a master spirit had been at work at the reconstruction of india and if you cannot make revolutions with rose-water neither can you make them without reaction lord dalhousie had not long left india on the appointment of lord canning to the governor-generalship when mutiny broke out lord dalhousie was a man of commanding energy of indomitable courage with the intellect of a ruler of men and the spirit of a conqueror the statesmen of india perform their parts upon a vast stage and yet they are to the world in general somewhat like the actors in a provincial theatre they do not get the fame of their work and their merits men have arisen in india whose deeds if done in europe would have ranked them at least with the richelieus and bismarcks of history if not actually with the caesars and charlemagnes and who are yet condemned to what may almost be called a merely local renown a record on the roll of great officials lord dalhousie was undoubtedly a great man he had had some parliamentary experience in england and in both houses and he had been vice-president and subsequently president of the board of trade under sir robert peel he had taken great interest in the framing of regulations for the railway legislation of the mania season of eighteen forty four and eighteen forty five toward the close of eighteen forty seven lord harding was recalled from india and lord dalhousie was sent out in his place never was there in any country an administration of more successful activity than that of lord dalhousie he introduced cheap postage in india he made railways he set up lines of electric telegraph within fifteen months according to one of his biographers the telegraph was in operation from calcutta to agra thence to attack on the indus and again from agra to bombay and madras he devoted much of his attention to irrigation to the making of great roads to the work of the ganges canal he was the founder of a comprehensive system of native education especially female education a matter so difficult and delicate in a country like india he put down infanticide the odious and extraordinary thug system and the settee or burning of widows on the funeral pyre of their husbands these are only some of the evidences of his unresting all-conquering energy they are but illustrative as they are far indeed from being exhaustive even as a catalogue but lord dalhousie was not wholly engaged in such works as these indeed his noble and glorious triumphs over material intellectual and moral obstacles 
runs some risk of being forgotten or overlooked by the casual reader of history in the storm of that fierce controversy which his other enterprises called forth during his few years of office he annexed the punjab he incorporated part of the burmese territory in our dominions he annexed nagpur sahara jassi berar and oued we are not called upon here to consider in detail the circumstances of each of these annexations or to ask the reader to pass judgment on the motives and policy of lord dalhousie it is fair to say that he was not by any means the mere imperial proconsul he is often represented to be thirsting with the ardour of a roman conqueror to enlarge the territory of his own state at any risk or any sacrifice of principle there was reason enough to make out a plausible case for even the most questionable of his annexations and in one or two instances he seems only to have resolved on annexation reluctantly and because things had come to that pass that he saw no other safe alternative left to him but his own general policy is properly expressed in his own words we are lords paramount of india and our policy is to acquire as direct a dominion over the territories and possession of the native princes as we already hold over the other half of india such a principle as this could only conduct in the vast majority of cases to a course of direct annexation let the ruler begin by disavowing it as he will in the punjab the annexation was provoked in the beginning as so many such retributions have been in india by the murder of some of our officers sanctioned if not actually ordered by a native prince lord dalhousie marched a force into the punjab this land the land of the five waters lies at the gateway of hindustan and was peopled by mussulmans hindus and sikhs the latter a new sect of reformed hindus we found arrayed against us not only the sikhs but our old enemies the afghans lord gough was in command of our forces he fought rashly and disastrously the famous battle of chilianwala the plain truth may as well be spoken out without periphrasis he was defeated but before the outcry raised in india and in england over this calamity had begun to subside he had wholly recovered our position and prestige by the complete defeat which he inflicted upon the enemy at gujarat never was a victory more complete in itself or more promptly and effectively followed up the sikhs were crushed the afghans were driven in wild rout back across their savage passes lord dalhousie and next the punjab he presented as one token of his conquest the famous diamond the kohinoor surrendered in evidence of submission by the maharaja of lahore to the crown of england lord dalhousie annexed owed on the ground that the east india company had bound themselves to defend the sovereigns of owed against foreign and domestic enemies on condition that the state should be governed in such a manner as to render the lives and property of its population safe and that while the company performed their part of the contract the king of oed so governed his dominions as to make his rule a curse to his own people and to all neighbouring territories other excuses or justifications there were of course in the case of each other annexation and we shall yet hear more of what came of the annexation of sahara and josi 
if however each of these acts of policy were not only justifiable but actually inevitable none the less must a succession of such acts produce a profound emotion among the races in whose midst they were accomplished lord dalhousie wanted one quality of a truly great man he lacked imagination he had not that dramatic instinct that fine sympathetic insight by which a statesman is enabled to understand the feelings of races and men differing wholly in education habits and principles from himself he appeared to be under the impression that when once a ruler had established among whatever foreign people a system of government or of society better than that which he found existing there he might count on obtaining their instant appreciation of his work and their gratefulness for it the sovereign of oed was undoubtedly a very bad ruler his governing system if it ought to be dignified by such a name was a combination of anarchy and robbery the chiefs of oed were reavers and bandits the king was the head reaver and bandit but human nature even in the west is not so constituted as to render a population always and at once grateful to any powerful stranger who uproots their old and bad systems and imposes a better on them by force of arms a tyrant but our masters then were still at least our countrymen is the faithful expression of a sentiment which has embarrassed energetic reformers before the days of lord dalhousie the populations of india became stricken with alarm as they saw their native princes thus successively dethroned the subversion of thrones the annexation of states seemed to them naturally enough to form part of that vast scheme for rooting out all the religions and systems of india concerning which so many vague forebodings had darkly warned the land many of our sepoys came from moed and other annexed territories and little reason as they might have had for any personal attachment to the subverted dynasties they yet felt that national resentment which any manner of foreign intervention is almost certain to provoke there were peculiar reasons too why if religious and political distrust did prevail the moment of lord canning's accession to the supreme authority in india should seem inviting and favourable for schemes of sedition the afghan war had told the sepoy that british troops were not absolutely invincible in battle the impression produced almost everywhere in india by the crimean war was a conviction that the strength of england was on the wane the stories of our disasters in the crimea had gone abroad adorned with immense exaggerations among all the native populations of hindustan any successes that the russians had had during the war were in asia and these naturally impressed the asiatic mind more than the victories of france and england which were won farther off intelligent and quick-witted mohammedans and hindus talked with englishmen english officers in india and heard from them the accounts of the manner in which our system had broken down in the crimea of the blunders of our government and the shortcomings of our leaders they entirely misinterpreted the significance of the stories that were so freely told the englishmen who spoke of our failures talked of them as the provoking and inexcusable blunders of departments and individuals the asiatics who greedily listened were convinced that they heard the acknowledgment of a national collapse 
the englishmen were so confident in the strength and resources of their country that it did not even occur to them to think that anybody on earth could have a doubt on the subject it was as if a millionaire were to complain to someone in a foreign country that the neglect and blunder of a servant had sent his remittances to some wrong place and left him for the moment without money enough to pay his hotel bill and the listener were to accept this as a genuine announcement of approaching bankruptcy the sepoys saw that the english force in northern india was very small and he really believed that it was small because england had no more men to send there he was as ignorant as a child about everything which he had not seen with his own eyes and he knew absolutely nothing about the strength the population and the resources of england in his mind russia was the great rising and conquering country england was sinking into decay her star waning before the strong glare of the portentous northern light other impulses too there were to make sedition believe that its opportunity had come lord canning had hardly assumed office as governor-general of india when the dispute occurred between the british and chinese authorities at canton and a war was imminent between england and china troops were sent shortly after from england to china and although none were taken from india yet it was well known among the native populations that england had an asiatic war on her hands almost at the same moment war was declared against persia by the proclamation of the governor-general at calcutta in consequence of the shah having marched an army into herat and besieged it in violation of a treaty with great britain made in eighteen fifty three a body of troops was sent from bombay to the persian gulf and shortly after general outram left bombay with additional troops as commander-in-chief of the field force in persia therefore in the opening days of eighteen fifty seven it was known among the native populations of india that the east india company was at war with persia and that england had on her hands a quarrel with china at this time the number of native soldiers in the employment of england throughout northern india was about one hundred and twenty thousand while the european soldiers numbered only about twenty two thousand the native army of the three presidencies taken together was nearly three hundred thousand while the europeans were but forty three thousand of whom some five thousand had just been told off for duty in persia it must be owned that given the existence of a seditious spirit it would have been hardly possible for it to find conditions more seemingly favourable and tempting to many a temper of sullen discontent the appointed and fateful hour must have seemed to be at hand there can be no doubt that a conspiracy for the subversion of the english government in india was afoot during the early days of eighteen fifty seven and possibly for long before the story of the mysterious chapatis is well known the chapatis are small cakes of unleavened bread bannocks of salt and dough they have been termed and they were found to be distributed with amazing rapidity and precision of system at one time throughout the native villages of the north and northwest a native messenger brought two of these mysterious cakes to the watchman or headman of a village and bade him to have others prepared like them and to pass them on to another place the token has been well described as the fiery cross of india although it would not appear that its significance was as direct and precise as that of the famous highland war signal
it is curious how varying and unsatisfactory is the evidence about the meaning of these chapatis according to the positive declaration of some witnesses the sending of such a token had never been a custom either mohammedan or hindu in india some witnesses believed that the chapatis were regarded as spells to avert some impending calamity others said the native population looked on them as having been sent round by the government itself as a sign that in future all would be compelled to eat the same food as the christians ate others again said the intention was to make this known but to make it known on the part of the seditious in order that the people might be prepared to resist the plans of the english but there could be no doubt that the chapatis conveyed a warning to all who received them that something strange was about to happen and bade them to be prepared for whatever might befall one fact alone conclusively proves that the signal given had a special reference to impending events connected with british rule in india in no instance were they distributed among the populations of still existing native states they were only sent among the villages over which english rule extended to the quick suspicious mind of the asiatic a breath of warning may be as powerful as the crash of an alarm bell or the sound of a trumpet it may be as some authorities would have us to believe that the panic about the greased cartridges disconcerted instead of bringing to a climax the projects of sedition End of section six